Hi, I'm Chuck Betters, and you are listening to a Help and Hope resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Today, I have the privilege of introducing you to Doug Clark. Because Doug's story is so compelling and filled with real hope for anyone struggling with drug addiction or loves someone who is trapped by addiction, his story will help parents who feel helpless as they watch their children choose drugs. And I really do believe his words will give better understanding to those who perhaps do not understand the pool of illegal drug use. Now we're gonna be offering Doug's story in a time when drug use is so rampant in our country and people are not only losing their families but are dying from overdoses. Every day we see pictures of beautiful young people who have lost their lives to drug addiction. Now, I do believe Doug's story offers help and hope to anyone struggling with drug addiction. So, Doug, I want to welcome you. Welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. How about starting from the time you were a child? Because your growing up years had a significant influence on your choice to experiment with drugs. Absolutely. So I was born into a family where I was essentially an only child. I mean, my sister and I were 11 years apart. So by the time I was eight, she had moved out of the house already. And around the age of eight or nine years old, my parents, you know, found Jesus. And we moved from our home in Claymont, Delaware to Bear, Delaware. And, you know, as new Christians, my parents submerged themselves in what can only be described as a legalistic, semi-Pelagian Baptist culture. Um, I, I watched them struggle with trying to fit the mold of what they assumed Christianity was according to the church they attended, yet ultimately they failed with every ounce of effort that they exerted. And this same mentality uh, that they had began to be pushed onto me as a little child through countless coercions in the sinner's prayers and, I mean, every aspect of my life being examined through their newly discovered worldview, if you will. And I became extremely bitter and angry towards Christianity. And as the years passed, I grew up in this bitterness and displeasure for church and, you know, Christians in general. And I was even put in a Christian school and through my bitterness rejected any idea of formulating relationships in this context. And the four years that I spent in Christian education were extremely lonely and helped cultivate my displeasure with the things of God. Eventually, I was put back in the public school system where I found a home and friendship among other youths that were involved with a music group known as the Insane Clown Posse or ICP. And this was a critical moment in my life as ICP gave my flesh, uh, my fallen condition, an outlet to express uh, itself. Wow, that's an interesting name, an Insane Clown Posse. What? Uh, tell us about how this group changed your life. Insane Clown Posse went from being just a hobby to an ex an obsession, and ultimately it became a cult following in which I worshiped the group and their music as an idol. And I mean, I followed them, or I followed their message of sex, drugs, and violence religiously, and that's no understatement. This is where I found the foundation of my drug use, sexual immorality. This, in ICP, is where it found its foundation and trajectory. And from the ages of 15 to 24, I followed this music group all over the country, partying from city to city, and with each city and with each party and with each drug, falling deeper and deeper into darkness. 
So from ages 12 to 19, I began to experiment with any and all drugs that I could get my hands on. We're talking from ecstasy to crystal meth. I would do any drug that was available. However, my desire for drugs changed around the age of 18 when I was introduced to oxycodone. Over the course of the next few years, oxycodone became the dominant idol that consumed me and eventually transitioned into a full-blown heroin. Wow. You were not only then a heroin addict, but uh, you were addicted to painkillers as well? Yes. Uh, when I was 20 years old, I came to the conscious realization that I was addicted to prescription painkillers. And it was absolutely horrifying. Um, and I didn't know how to get off them. So my family checked me into Kirk, the Kirkwood Detox Center for a five to 10 day detox treatment to help get the drugs out of my system and get me clean, if you will. And during this time in the detox center, I experienced sobriety for the first time since for the first time in years. And it filled me with absolute just broken sorrow. So as I'm sitting alone in this room in the detox center, I, I can still picture it like it's yesterday. Uh, it, it was dark. There was no lights on in the room except for the light shining through the blinds into the room. And I was alone. And as I'm sitting there in this room, I look across the room and sitting on a shelf in the midst of the quiet and silence, there was a Bible sitting on this bookshelf. And I picked up the Bible for the first time since my youth, and I began to read. And while I was reading, the strangest thing happened. My mind became flooded by repressed memories of all these things that I had learned as a child regarding the gospel. Like throughout the many years of rebellion, my parents continued to sow these seeds. They kept trying to tell me about Jesus and Jesus died for your sins and all of this stuff about Jesus and the gospel. And it just seems that these seeds that were sown laid dormant on my heart until the appointed time. So in the detox center, I cried out to God for deliverance from my addiction. But what's interesting is shortly after I checked myself out of the detox center against medical advice and immediately purchased cocaine and attended a concert of an ICP affiliate. So it seems as uh, at, at first it would seem like your time in that uh, rehab center was maybe useless since you immediately went back to cocaine use. But how, how did it really change your perspective? On the surface, it, it would absolutely seem as though it was useless. However, what's interesting is that upon my discharge from the detox center, my vision and worldview had completely changed. Because I now carried with me a consciousness and a great burden that haunted me. And I knew that what I was doing was sin. And I was guilty before a holy and righteous God. And I couldn't escape this thought. It consumed me. And I feared death because I knew that in its grasp, I'd be held accountable for my transgressions. However, rather than turning from my sin and repentance... What I began to do was I began to self-medicate even more to hide my mind from the reality of, of my impending doom, my impending judgment. And this continued for years and followed me everywhere I went. But to give you an example of what I mean, I would often lay awake at night haunted by this truth and fear of what awaited me in death. And to mask this fear, I would take large amounts of opiates so that I would black out before bed while hoping that I don't overdose. And through this process, I went through ups and downs of crying out to God in moments of sobriety, which would ultimately result in relapses that would put me far worse off than before. And this cycle ended with me being homeless in an abandoned trailer. You know, the last straw came as I lay awake in the early hours of the morning on the floor of that trailer, 
and that all too familiar voice of conviction came to me, but rather than running from it, I, I accepted defeat and submitted to the reality that I could not deliver myself from the sin that consumed me. As I wept on the floor of the trailer in complete brokenness, you know, really having no hope or idea of how I was to get off drugs in the following days, I went to the doctors and I signed myself up for Suboxone maintenance and humbly begged my parents for mercy. How, how old were you when you were in the abandoned trailer in Chesapeake City? 24, going on 25. 24, wow. It's interesting to me that during this really dark time, all of those concepts or principles of scripture in terms of your relationship to Christ came flooding back to you. Even though the original experience that you had as a child was a negative one. You saw the gospel in a negative light. Now years, now years later, it's coming back to you uh, in a different form and at a different time when you are experiencing tremendous darkness. Am I reading that correctly? Absolutely. And, and even though it doesn't seem like it at first, I, I really do see God's grace in that very dark and broken place. Uh, the image that you paint of being homeless in that trailer and uh, just experiencing this just tremendous sense of conviction um, is, is really poignant. So what happened next? It's beneficial to note, as I'm going through all this, that in my last year of my drug usage, this is part of the bigger picture. Um, my addiction merged with the addiction of my girlfriend at that time, and we began functioning in a codependent relationship, if you will. We helped carry each other in our addictions, and through this, a bond was formed. However, when I felt the drawing to stop getting high, I felt that I could force her to get sober as well. However, what I failed to realize is I couldn't get myself sober, let alone try to force somebody else to get sober. And we both moved into my parents' house, and I began splitting my Suboxone, my Suboxone prescription with her. You know, I had this this concept and this idea that, OK, if we move into my parents' house, we can get sober together. We'll maintain our lives on Suboxone and I'll get a job and then we'll live happily ever after and we'll move out and get married and everything will be perfect. However, this definitely isn't how it worked out. And I, I'm grateful to God for that. We both moved into my parents' house and I began splitting my Suboxone. With them. And this cycle caused me to or. Yet the more I, I pushed this whole concept of we're going to get sober, the more she rebelled and continued to get high. So as I would push for her to take the Suboxone and not do heroin, the more and more she would seem to want to run out and do heroin. And as I began pushing for this, I began to feel great anxiety, sorrow, and fear because I wanted her to get sober with me. And it almost is as if, sure, I had stopped using heroin. But I had shifted my worship to the worship of the girl. She became the idol that I worshipped, and my act of worship was trying to force her to no longer get high. So she essentially became the new idol that I worship. And all of this came to a head one morning when I woke up, and I discovered that 20 of my Suboxone strips were missing. Street value for drugs, Suboxone sells on the streets for $10 a strip, and 20 strips were taken. That's about that's $200. So we're looking at more than enough to get a decent amount of heroin. And I was absolutely certain that my girlfriend at the time had stolen them. And, you know, my parents being 
good Christian parents, we weren't married, so we had to sleep in separate rooms. So I went into her room and I absolutely tore the room apart. I mean, I was lifting mattresses. I was checking vents. It was like a prison shakedown, if you will, as I was looking for these missing suboxone and or drugs because I knew deep down inside that she was getting high and I was going to catch. But the problem is I found absolutely nothing. There was nothing there. And this caused me to begin to break down as I began to fear that I was losing my mind. And perhaps all those years of drug usage had done considerable psychological damage. This was the first time in years that I had been off of any type of substance, not considering the Suboxone. Uh, but I began to fear that perhaps all those years of drug usage had damaged my mind and what I was going through, this anxiety, this fear, was a product of the psychological damage that had been done to me. So in the midst of all my uh, mental confusion torment, I got in my car and I began to drive. And I was driving up 95 North towards Wilmington, Delaware. I remember it was a beautiful day out that day. And I began to weep uncontrollably. And in the midst of all the mental chaos, I began to pray. And I begged God to show me that I wasn't crazy and that I hadn't lost my mind. And I was pleading with him, begging, please, Lord, show me you're real. I know you're real, but show me you're real. Show me that I'm not going crazy. Show me that I'm not losing my mind. And I begged God to show me that he is real. And in that prayer, all of a sudden, at what at the moment I could have considered the worst time, my consciousness of my sin came to the forefront of my mind. It rose up. That ever so small voice of conviction crept upon me and it came right to the forefront of my mind and in that consciousness i cried out to jesus to show me that he was real and i would turn from my sin so what i'm going to say next is not said to enhance the story whatsoever this is the truth this is this moment this is the moment that changed my life while i'm still in the midst of begging to christ for mercy i receive a text from an old drug dealer who notified me that is that my girlfriend at the time had recently had sex with him in exchange for heroin. This halted, I mean, this halted my prayer and stopped me dead in my tracks. I was shocked. I remember reading this as I'm driving and I just very calmly turned my car around. Something just moved me to turn, turn my car around and go back to my parents' house. I go back to my parents' house and I walk upstairs and I walk into the room uh, that my girlfriend was staying in and I look at all the chaos uh, I had caused. I had checked every nook and cranny of this room for those drugs. And upon entry, I look down to my left, right next to the doorway, and there sitting on the floor is a backpack that I didn't check. And I open the backpack, and inside the backpack is a makeup bag. And inside of that makeup bag was two bundles of heroin and a syringe. And in this moment, this should have been a moment to where I exploded. Ha, ah, I got her. I was right all along. I'm not crazy. You know, I can justify my actions and my attitude and all these things. But in that moment, a peace came over me. I wasn't concerned with catching her doing wrong. I wasn't concerned with justifying my own position. In that moment, I knew that Jesus was real. And I knew that all those things that I had heard were real. And it was, I felt a peace come over me that even to this day, I get goosebumps as I speak about it. And I, I can't explain it. I knew that he was real and everything that I had heard about the gospel was the truth. And in that moment, I believed. Looking back now at that moment, I believe that regeneration took place in the detox and I was allowed to see and feel the weight of the law 
until the appointed time that the Lord decided to open my eyes and ears in such a way that I was granted faith and justified through the blood of Christ. I took the drugs that I had found in her bag, and this was a lot of heroin. I took these drugs, I got a hold of her, I handed them to her, and I said goodbye. And I turned away from them both, and I repented of these idols that I had fashioned and worshipped. I like to describe the relationship that we have with Jesus this way. If we can picture ourselves in our relationship to Christ as a big house, and we say to Christ, okay, I am giving you every room in this house except this one over here. That's the one he's going to go after. And then we say, well, I'll give you every aspect of this room. It has three closets in it, but I'm only going to give you two of them. This one here, I'm going to keep for myself. And then we go and we say, well, I see that you're going after that third closet. So I'm going to give you the four shelves in that closet, but the fifth one belongs to me. All the way down to the cans that are sitting on the shelf, Christ keeps going after those idols in our lives that whatever they are, big or small, and it sounds like you had some pretty big ones, and he keeps pursuing us in his grace and mercy, one one room at a time, one closet at a time, one shelf at a time, one can at a time. And it seems to me that what you're describing could be pictured as a man who's kind of in a pit, broken and hopeless and maybe helpless, then something clicked inside of you that gave you hope and purpose. And for you, that was Jesus. But he's still in the pit. You're still in the pit. You need to start moving out of it. And instead of that easy success, we feel like we are moving three steps forward, two steps backward, but we're still moving forward. The journey is excruciating. It's painful, especially during those two steps backwards. But Hope refuses to die. And and as I'm listening to your story, I'm wondering what happened after you recognized the need to cut off from your idol, your girlfriend. Was the journey easier? Did it become easier as a result of that or what? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. And the picture that you just painted is spot on. So I turn away from the girl. I give her the drugs. I walk away. But this is not the end of the story, as I had still not dealt with the fact that I was still utilizing Suboxone for my addiction to manage it. It's almost like it was a safety net underneath of me, and the question had to be asked. The girl was never the issue. Drugs were. After leaving the girl and the heroin, life became good for the first time, I mean in a long time. And I got a high-paying job finishing concrete, which I loved. I met a nice girl at the church I was attending who didn't do drugs, had never been in any type of trouble, came from a good family. Life was good, but that's with the exception that my conscience began to convict me again in the same way that it did about getting off of heroin. I could feel God's spirit presenting the reality that it was time to get off Suboxone. And I began to argue and wrestle with this in my mind for weeks. I I argued with this for weeks using science, fear, and my doctor's advice as my rationale for not stopping my Suboxone usage. But what I failed to realize is that Suboxone is just as addictive as heroin, and I had formed a habit. 
I realized this one day when I forgot to take my Suboxone before work, and I entered into psychological withdrawal immediately. You see, Suboxone, physical withdrawal doesn't start immediately. It's a couple days after. So this morning, I get up to go to work, and I get to work, and I realized that I had forgotten to take my Suboxone. Now, this was one of those days where we were running buckets of concrete up and down the ladder all day. It was hard work. We started at 7, and by 9 a.m., I had psyched myself up so much to believe that I was going through physical withdrawal that I actually believed that I was when I actually wasn't. That's how strong of a hold the Suboxone had upon me. And in that moment, I knew that I had to get off the Suboxone. And, you know, my parents pleaded with me, Doug, we've done our research. You're going to be on Suboxone for the rest of your life. And I did my research, and I was telling myself, Doug, you're going to be on Suboxone for the rest of your life. And my doctor, clearly he's wiser than I could ever be on this topic. Doug, it's going to be a lifelong thing that you're going to be on the Suboxone. Everybody else is telling me this, but the Lord was telling me otherwise. And on this day, as I psyched myself up to believe I was going to withdraw, I came to the realization, it's time to get off the Suboxone. I knew I had to get off the Suboxone rather than fight him. So I submitted to the Lord's moving and prayed that the Lord would make a way for me to stop using the Suboxone, because I knew that if I quit, the withdrawal would be too overwhelming to continue my current job and the relationship I was in. You know, I couldn't run buckets of concrete for eight to 10 hours a day while I was going through physical withdrawal. And I knew that this girl who I had met at church would never understand the monster that was getting ready to be pulled out of me. Thus, I prayed that the Lord would make a way. And the answer to that prayer came a few days later, on my birthday, no less, uh, when I was laid off and dumped in the same day. Now, before Christ, this would have been a trigger. It would have been like, you know what? I'm done. I can't deal with this. Everything's falling apart. I've lost everything good that I have. And I've just gone out and got high. Something had changed. The Lord had opened my eyes. He had opened my ears to the truth of the gospel. And I believed it. And I believed the promise that I was a new creation. And this empowered me in obedience. I trusted in the Lord. I believed when I got laid off and when I got dumped, I saw it as, wow, I asked you to pave the way. And guess what? You paved the way. Praise be to God. And I went home that day and I took the rest of my prescription down into my parents' backyard and they were pleading with me. Let us just keep one in case you have an urge. No, I've got to, I've got to let go of this. And I put it in the fire pit and I poured gasoline on it and I lit it up. And over the course of the next three months, I went through physical and mental withdrawal, cold turkey that I cannot explain. It was absolute hor- or, uh, torment. But I saw this almost like you look at the story of like David and Goliath, and there's this giant standing in front of me. The only thing is, I'm not David in the story. I'm the scared Israelite on the sideline horrified that I'm going to be crushed. And everybody's telling me, you're going to get defeated by this giant. But in comes David, Jesus, in my case, who goes before me and slays the giant on my behalf. This is what happened with my addiction. Christ went before me. And through all my pain, through all my suffering, through my fear, through my struggles, through my hurt with this withdrawal, Christ went before me. He slayed the giant on my behalf, and he sustained me through prayer and study of the scriptures. So in conclusion, I burned that Suboxone six years ago, and by Christ's provision and sustenance alone, uh, to, to God's glory, I have never looked back. And since then, 
It appears thus far that God has set me apart to minister to those whose shoes I once wore, namely those in addiction or incarcerated. The Lord has moved mightily in my life and has taken me to places that I could never imagine. At this current time, I'm the aftercare manager of Jubilee Ministries, and in this role, I have the privilege of helping men leaving prison with reintegrating back into society through a biblically-based reentry program slash, you know, transition home. A Christian halfway house, if you will. The Lord has taken me, a worthless, idol-worshipping drug addict, who, in and of myself, I have nothing to offer. Nothing at all. But the Lord has glorified himself through my life, through my pain, through my suffering, and through the gracious gift of his son, which he has shown mercy to me through. And in this humbling truth, all I can say is praise be to God. Soli Deo Gloria. Doug, imagine there's a man who's addicted to drugs right now sitting across the table from you, and you immediately recognize that despair that blank look in his face and in his eyes. Uh, I want you to speak directly to him. What's the first thing you would say to him? The first thing I would say is stop trying. Stop fighting. The truth is, if you're an addiction, you love to get high, but you hate what it does to your life. And ultimately what you're doing is a form of worship. You're worshiping something as God that is not God. And you can try through recovery programs. You can try through new relationships. You can try through all these different models of treatment. But the truth is, all you're going to do is shift the worship of the drug to the worship of something else. But if you truly want freedom, true freedom from your addiction, then you need to be brought before the one true God and lay yourself down. Lay down all of your trying, all of your efforts, and come to the realization that there is nothing you could do to save yourself. But salvation from not only addiction, but from all sin only comes through the gracious gift of God, through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. There seems to be, at least in your life, a situation where you had some pretty bad childhood memories of attending church and some bad first exposures to the gospel. And you experienced a lot of you have you still have a lot of painful childhood memories in that regard. So I'm thinking about the guy who or the girl who's sitting there listening to this right now, who wants to break the addiction, but has no interest in any kind of relationship to Jesus. Maybe would even go as far as to say, well, Doug, I'm glad that worked for you. I'm glad this Jesus thing worked for you, but I'm not interested in that because when, when I was growing up as a child, I... I was forced to attend church, and I had parents who were hypocrites. They claimed to be Christians, but I knew what was going on at home, and they often mistreated me, or they lived their lives in such a way that was totally inconsistent with what they said they believed or what the church even taught them. So you got this person sitting across from you who wants nothing to do with Jesus, but wants to be free from the drugs. What would you say to them? That person, I would say first and foremost, I, the most common misconception about Christianity is that people in the church are supposed to be perfect. People in the church are sinners, just like everybody else. The only difference is they have a greater consciousness of their sin than everybody else does because they know the truth. But it doesn't change the fact that they still struggle. They still wrestle with sin the same way that a person in addictions wrestles with their sin of 
worshiping a drug? People in the church struggle with the same thing, which places us all on common ground as sinners. So to the person who's had a bad history with Christianity, I would say just recognize that those people in the church are struggling and hurting just as much as you are. They just may not show it the same way that you do. For a person who wants to get clean apart from Jesus, I understand, but I would propose that addiction is not the root of the problem. It's merely the symptom. You see, we as human beings were created for the purpose of worship. We were created to worship. It's just that we were created to worship the one true God, the God of the Bible. But when sin entered the world, we were separated from that God, completely and utterly severed in our relationship to that God. But we still have this hardwiring and innate desire to worship. So what we do is we try to fill that void of desiring to worship with other things that are not God. And it's like drinking salt water. The more you drink it, the thirstier you get. So if you're looking to cure your addiction, you're only covering the surface level. To play on the topic of addiction, it's like taking painkillers without the cancer treatment. You're only covering the surface pain. You're not actually addressing the root. And the root is sin. And the only way that sin is removed and you could be reconciled to God and truly have satisfaction in this life is through having your relationship with the one true God restored through the blood of Jesus. Doug, your parents provided a home for you, even in the midst of your drug addiction, seemed, seemed to be very supportive of you along the way. And even though it came down to where you were going to burn the drugs in the in the fire pit that they were begging you to continue for or, or to hold on at least to one because obviously they were worried about you going through this withdrawal cold turkey. I, I've heard stories, I've seen some over the years of people who are going through withdrawal cold turkey. Are you recommending that people go through withdrawal and just basically say, that's it, I'm done? I'm, I'm coming off the drugs, I'm coming off the drug supplements and the suboxone and all that other stuff. I'm just not going to do it anymore and come off a cold turkey. Do you recommend that? What I would suggest, and this is my personal belief, is that the choice to come off drugs should be done with much care and prayer. I specifically felt the Lord moving me in this direction. But this is not to say that he doesn't have another path mapped out for somebody else, that he's going to providentially take them town so that he could build them up and mold and shape them into the image of Christ. And that may look a lot different than my path. So to answer the question simply, do I think it's wrong to use medical treatment and possibly counseling and things like that? Absolutely not. I believe that these are all means that the Lord has provided. But I believe ultimately what the bigger picture is, is is God glorified through the mode that you're using to come off of drugs? Ultimately, is Christ's exaltation the primary objective of you coming off of drugs? If you're on Suboxone and you're coming to find that this is becoming an addiction, you know, perhaps that may not be the best mode for the simple fact that it's leading to sin. However, if you're on Suboxone for a time and it's helping you get through the withdrawal, but your eyes are fixed on Christ and he is getting the glory, then for a time, perhaps that may be an acceptable mode. I have a friend who uh, was on Suboxone for years, fixed his eyes on Jesus and didn't quit cold turkey. He weaned himself off and that's worked for him as well. 
the ultimate end goal and question that I believe has to be asked is, is God glorified through how you're coming off? You know, you, you mentioned your parents several times now, and uh, they're, they're very much an integral part of this story. And so as we wrap this up, I want to ask you to let's address for a moment parents whose children are are addicted or they they sense that they're becoming addicted. Uh, A very simple question is how can parents protect their children from drugs or what kind of help should they be giving to their addicted child? So in regard to how should parents help protect their children, I would say first and foremost, the gospel, the foundation of the child's protection, if you will, from addiction, or even the strength to come out of addiction, should they get addicted, is the gospel. I would say raising your children up according to the scriptures, giving them grace, teaching them about the grace that we have through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, my parents, even though they were somewhat legalistic, And I felt as though they were beating me with their Bible every chance that they could. I now realize as a father myself that what they were doing was they were instilling truths within me that were sowing seeds that at the Lord's appointed time were the mode by which I was delivered from my addiction. So I would say foundationally, raise your children according to the gospel. Share the gospel with them. Make the gospel the central theme of everything that we believe. And allow your children to see that. I would also say in regard to parents who have a child that's currently going through addiction, we ultimately have to remember that this is not Doug's story. It's not my parents' story. This is God's story. And we each have a very minuscule part to play in it. And as it unfolds, it unfolds for his glory as those who are involved in the story come to a saving knowledge of him or are strengthened in their faith. So. In the midst of my addiction, my parents were being sanctified as well, and they were growing in their faith. I remember to give you a specific example. I had used and abused my parents for years, years and years and years, and I had moved out to the Midwest uh, to get away from them, trying to push for me to get sober. And one night I had no money. I had no drugs. And this was a critical point for me as well in my addiction. I called my parents. I called my mom. My mom was always the one who babied me more. My father didn't quite put up with it as much. And I called my mom and told her, you know, I gave her some story about why I needed money. And the conversation turned into, if you don't Western Union me money, I'm going to kill myself. And I played this card before. And that's what addicts do. Uh, in In our addiction, we manipulate and we use sin to manipulate those we love. And I remember my father taking the phone and I could hear my mom in the background crying. And my dad said, Doug, we love you, but we will no longer support your addiction. And we've given you over to the Lord. If you should decide to take your own life, you belong to the Lord and we will trust him. Please don't ask us for money ever again. And he hung up. I didn't kill myself. I was just using that as a tool. But what that did in my parents' life was that allowed them to no longer rely on their ability to try to force me to get sober. It placed them in a position of complete, utter reliance and faith on the Lord. And every Monday night for the years following, my father and a group of men from his church came together and they specifically prayed for me every single Monday night with much tears and anguish and pain. But now I sit here 
sober for years, actually being used by God to help other addicts. And this is not just a part of my testimony, but this is a part of my parents' story as well, as they've got to sit and watch the powerful, sovereign, and providential hand of God move in my life and see all of their prayers for their son be answered. And it strengthened them and it helped mold them into the image of Christ within them. So for the parent who is struggling with a child who's in addiction now, my advice to you is don't rely on your ability to make them get clean or your efforts to make them get clean. Fall at the feet of Jesus and trust that what he has, whether it seems good or bad for you, is what's best because he is God. You uh, <clears throat> mentioned your parents took you in. It sounds like it, and maybe it was on several different different occasions when you were battling the addiction, that uh, you had a home with your parents. Uh, is, it, is it ever right for the parents to say to their child, uh, I'm sorry this is happening to you. I, uh, I, you're responsible for your own behavior and no, this home is not open to you. Absolutely. You know, one of the major things that I see from a professional standpoint, if you will, which is still ultimately a ministry standpoint, is as I deal with these guys coming out of prison, what you'll often find is that their family members or girlfriends or wives, they enable them. And this enabling becomes a way that they're able to manipulate to get what they want. I have one guy right now who every time something doesn't go his way, he threatens I'm going to call my mom and leave the program. Why? Because there's comfort and there's a safe zone where he can actively live out his addiction in the comfort and care of those family members, wives, girlfriends, you name it. So my suggestion would be this. Pray about it first. Seek the Lord's guidance first. But sometimes saying no to the addict is the best thing that you could do do for them. It's just hard from a personal standpoint because you now have no control. When they're living in your house, you have some bit of control. You've still got some grasp on them. You can still dictate this, that, and the other. But when you say you can no longer live here, as my parents did, we're putting you into the hands of the Lord, you've given up all control to our God. And at that point, not only are you allowing for the child to be broken, but you're also allowing for your faith to be strengthened and to grow in him. So I would absolutely say not only is it a good thing through prayer and great, you know, great amount of prayer, but I would also say um, that it's it's necessary at times. You know, it's interesting to me that uh, there seems to be. In some people who are struggling with drug addictions, they try more than once to break that addiction. They go to rehab, they make commitments. Uh, many of them actually, uh, I'll use the expression, get religious. And then a few, and a few months later, they're right back on the drugs. They go up and they go down, they go up and they go down. Let's try to help those who really do love them to understand the pull that drugs has, that they're willing to give up everything just to get that fixed. I mean, for those of us who have never struggled with addiction, those of us who have never had this kind of addiction, it's hard for us to comprehend, A, the manipulative aspect of the drug addict. Uh, drug addicts can be extremely manipulative. 
in order to get that fix. But B, the physiological aspects of being on drugs and knowing that it's eating you alive from the inside out, wanting to come off and and maybe for a few days or a few rehab sessions or a few uh, NA meetings or AA meetings or something like that, they feel as though they have uh, they have made significant progress only to get hit right in the gut at the most inopportune time and find themselves right back on uh, right back on the streets or right back into the addiction. Can you speak to that situation? The two steps forward, the three steps backward kind of thing uh, of a person who is struggling with addiction and more specifically, uh, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to address those who are not addicted, those who are trying to help those who are addicted to understand just the torture, the physiological torture, the mental torture that a drug addict is going through. You know, from a physical aspect, it's easy to understand what an addict goes through. Muscle cramps, diarrhea, vomiting, flu-like symptoms, where those who are not addicted cannot ever grasp what addiction is comes in the mental aspect. It's, to give you a good picture, there was so many times in my addiction where I would get down to my last bag and I would say, this is it. I'm done. It's over. I'm going to do this last bag and tomorrow I'm going to have a normal life. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to move towards my future. I'm going to have a white picket fence with a dog and a wife and children. Everything's going to be perfect. I'm going to have that normal life. And I'd go to bed that night with high hopes and aspirations that I was going to have this new tomorrow. But when I'd wake up the next day, it was almost as though the real me was locked in a cage in the back of my mind, screaming for somebody to let me out. And my body went on autopilot right back to the block to get more drugs. The suffering and anguish that an addict psychologically goes through when they don't have drugs is inexplainable. In my life, I've had a lot of people who I love die. And that initial feeling of, of death when somebody you love dies, it's almost there's a tight feeling in your stomach. It feels like you can't breathe. I would relate what the addict psychologically goes through to that feeling. That's how I, as people I love died, that's that same feeling I got when I didn't have drugs, that anxiety, that fear, that flush, the flushing of hopelessness coming over you, consuming you. And it consumes every aspect of the addict's mind. It's like picture, picture you're in love with a woman and all of a sudden she's ripped away from you and she dies. And this is going to sound strange to those who are not in addiction, but if you've ever had anybody pass, this is a horrendous feeling. And that person is taken away from you and you would do anything to have them back in that moment. And when you get that drug in your hand, it's as though they've resurrected from the dead and you've got one last second with them. And as soon as that drug goes into your system and it's gone, they're ripped away from you again. This is why we see addicts going to the extent of giving up their children, giving up their houses, giving up their health. This is why we see prostitution and we see just absolute moral decay in the pursuit of the drug. They literally fall in love with this idol that they worship. It becomes the center of their universe and it consumes all aspects of their life. 
And even though they're somewhere in there screaming out, no, don't do this, at the same time, they cannot help but pursue and chase that which they love, this idol that they worship. And to the unaddicted mind, this probably sounds so bizarre, but when a child who's addicted to heroin comes to you and lies to you and manipulates you and then steals your money or does something that you could never comprehend why they would do that, they're in love with the drug and they would give all aspects of their life. Looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 18 through 22, in that passage, Paul talks about eating food that was sacrificed on the altar of idols. And what he says is idols are inanimate objects. But when you're offering on the altar of idols, what you're actually offering to are the demons who are behind them. And I found this really profound as I was digging into what is addiction and uh, looking into this topic. Because when you really think about it, heroin is an inanimate object. How could somebody love an inanimate object? And how could an inanimate object have such control over a person when they worship it? How could it? And when you really think about it, what they're offering themselves over to, what they're giving up their children for, what they're giving up their health for, what they're giving up their home for, what they're giving up their morals for, ultimately what they're giving up their soul for is they're laying all these down at the feet of the demon behind the drug. It's demonic. It's evil. And it grasps a hold of them and it drags them into the pit. Do you think about like, if you've ever watched National Geographic and you see a gazelle and it's thirsty on a hot day and all it wants is a drink of water and this gazelle goes over to the river and it bows down at the river and it begins to drink, begins to drink. It's drinking in and it feels so good and it tastes so good. And as it's kneeling there drinking, the gazelle lifts his eyes up, and before him is the eyes of the crocodile. And before the gazelle could pull away, the crocodile has reached out and grabbed the gazelle and drug it into the depths of the water, never to be released again. That's addiction. Uh, It's interesting that you say that, because when you think about when we raised our children, we would teach them that uh, Satan does not know about any line in the sand that you have drawn. He's a snake. He's on the other side of the line. And if you think that if you walk up to the line, but do not cross over the line, that Satan isn't going to jump the line, then you've, you've misjudged Satan. Uh, he will, he will lunge over and he will, he will attack. He will hit. And, and just one final word here. I want to hear from you is this. When we lost our son, Mark, when, when Mark was taken from us in 1993, we lost him very suddenly. It was it was a, just a just a beautiful night, and he said goodbye, and we would never see him again alive. And uh, the pain over the next months, and and I would say years, the pain was so unbearable and so difficult for us to endure that I often thought to myself, I kind of wish I were a drug addict. I kind of wish I were an alcoholic. I kind of wish I could shoot myself up with something to to take this pain away. Now, of course, as a Christian, those moments were fleeting and passing, but it helped me to understand that people who are in horrific pain, people who are really in the inside out, the inside is rotting from with from within and and, and it's spreading like a horrible disease and, and they're losing this thing called the battle for life. I think it's it's incumbent on those of us who are sober to be able to look with compassion on those 
who are looking for that fix, something that will make them feel better. And of course, what I'm hearing you say is that that's that's just a that's just a, a muse. That's just a guise uh, that Satan uses to convince us that uh, this is the answer. That you just need to shoot up some drugs, and that's the answer. And, and it never really addresses the problem, except superficially and only for a moment. So as we close, I want you to see yourself sitting now across the table from two people. You have a you have a mother or a father whose child is addicted sitting at one end of the table, and you with wringing their hands in disgust and wondering how in the what can they do, what can they. What actions can they take to help their child? And then at the other end of the table, you have a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid who, is, uh, who has sunk into some form of addiction. And you're sitting in the middle of that table, and they're both looking to you and saying, help us. What would you say to them? Start with the father or the mother on the one end of the table. To the father and the mother. And essentially, I guess the advice would be the same to both, would be to turn their eyes upon Jesus. In the circumstance of the father and mother, they have no control over the circumstance. I moved 1,300 miles away, and where I went, my sin went with me. This ultimately comes down to a divine act of intervention by our God. Turn to Jesus in both circumstances. Mom and dad. If your child is in addiction right now and you are scared that you're going to lose your baby, that you're going to get that phone call, that they've overdosed, if this is your fear, all of your fighting, all of your trying will be in vain if you have not first looked to the Lord as your sustenance, as your power, and as your strength. You will only become discouraged through, through each relapse, through each lie. But if you fix your eyes upon Christ and realize that he is in control of all of these circumstances, he can give you the peace and the strength necessary to push forward to see your child recover in the same way that I have recovered and my parents have been able to praise God through my deliverance. And to the child sitting at the other side of the table, not even to the child, to the young man, the young woman, to the old man, to the old woman who's in the midst of their addiction right now. I give the same advice. Turn to Jesus. In the midst of your addiction, you are drinking salt water that is leaving you thirsty over and over and over again. And you were worshiping that which will never, ever satisfy your soul. Rather, turn to the one who you will drink and he will give you living water. Turn to him and drink and be filled. And he will pull these idols out of your life. Turn to him. Turn to his cross. Turn to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he will take your sin and he will place it on that cross with him. And he will die on that cross with your sin. And your sin will be buried with him, but he will raise with a new nature for you. And your sin will stay in that grave. And he will raise with a new nature, a nature that will reconcile you to your God, and you will be able to find satisfaction through true worship. You've been listening to a Help and Hope resource produced by Marking Ministries. 
I want to thank Doug Clark for his uh, his transparency, his willingness to share openly with us uh, a story of deliverance, a story of redemption, a story of healing and reconciliation. And I, I want to say to you, if you are struggling with drug addiction, please, please reach out to us at markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. And We'll do our very best to connect you with someone who can help you navigate this really painful pathway, this really difficult pathway. And please also let us know if this conversation has helped you in any way. When you visit markinc.org, you're gonna find numerous free resources uh, that are designed to offer help and hope on to hurting people who are involved in numerous life crises. Our goal, our objective here is to lead you to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And any of us on our staff here would be more than happy to show you how you can come to experience God's love and God's forgiveness in Christ. And again, Doug, I want to thank you for allowing us to tell your story uh, as you are now able to look back and and help bring along with you those who are walking in this journey, walking these difficult steps, but you do so from the perspective of one uh, who knows exactly what they're going through and is able to show them how to navigate this difficult road in a personal relationship or with a personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Doug, thank you so much. I really do appreciate your willingness to share so faithfully. God bless.